Hello, and welcome to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. From verbal abuse to sexual violence, government consultations on harassment in the workplace have shown it's not only a widespread problem, but it also largely goes unreported. Employment Minister Patty Haidu is here to talk about the government's new report and tells us all options are on the table when it comes to dealing with this serious issue. This week, New York was rocked by another terror attack when someone drove a truck down a bike path, killing eight people and injuring about a dozen. We speak with one New Yorker who had biked through that stretch shortly before the attack. The National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls is asking for more time, more money, and a National Police Task Force that could review and even reopen cases. Here to talk about the interim report is the Chief Commissioner of the Inquiry, Marion Buller, who says they may need years to complete their work. And we end off with the McLean's panel discussing how the Senate could delay the Trudeau government's plan to legalize pot and why politicians are debating divine intervention. For your politics, for your power, welcome to the Hill. It's never all right. That's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau responding to a report released this week by his government on its consultations about harassment in the workplace. The results are disturbing. A survey conducted by the government as a part of this process found that 60% of respondents had experienced harassment on the job within the last two years. 30% of those people say it involved sexual harassment. About 20% say it was violence, and 3% say they were the victims of sexual violence. Not only that, but 80% of these victims say they did not report the incident. The consultations are being done as the government works to create a new federal strategy to tackle workplace harassment, which could include new laws and regulations. I caught up with the employment minister, Patty Haidu, to talk about the findings of the consultations and what the government plans to do about this. First off, this government survey that's been receiving a lot of attention in regards to your consultations on harassment in the workplace, uh, the government has said that it's more anecdotal evidence than scientific because uh, just the way the survey is set up, people chose to participate rather be more reflective of Canadian society. Nonetheless, you mentioned to me earlier in the week um, during a scrum that you weren't surprised to find out that 60% of the respondents say they've dealt with harassment in the last two years, but you were surprised with how many people were not reporting it. Why is it shocking to you to hear that so many people are choosing to stay silent about this? Well, it's just the propensity is more likely that people won't report. And I think uh, it's shocking just because it means that the problem perpetuates over and over and over and that when people don't report, uh, clearly they've been uh, disinhibited or inhibited from reporting, but uh, but it means that the problem just continues. And you know, perpetrators often have multiple victims. I mean, if you're a harasser in the workplace and you uh, and that's your style of quote unquote leadership, perhaps uh, it's likely not just one person that you're treating that way. And so it can be a systemic, endemic thing unless unless uh, unless reporting happens and behavior changes. So, did the survey look into why people are choosing not to report? Is it only the intimidation factor? Well, certainly the consultations that we held, which was part of the report, uh, talk, many of the stakeholders talked about that, and they talked about uh, victims feeling that uh, when they did report that their 
you know, their, their concerns weren't taken seriously, that they'd had experiences reporting before in maybe previous work or previous uh, workplaces, that they were penalized for reporting in some way, sometimes not even explicitly. Sometimes, you know, they felt that it inhibited their career opportunities or they were shunned by their colleagues. Or So I think there's a number of reasons why people don't report. I think that uh, it's at the end of it and the root of it, it's fear. I mean, it's fear that whatever the desired outcome, which is the, the cessation of the behavior, is not, it's not going to happen and that there's going to be risk to your own personal self if you report. Now, harassment ranges from, you know, being verbally abused in the workplace to sexual violence. Mm-hmm. Some people may have an ignorant view of what harassment could be and say, so what? Someone gets catcalled at work or pinched on the bottom. You know, what, 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 are, what, what are the long-term impacts to that? How does that affect other people in the workplace? You sort of touched on it there where this, this behavior could perpetuate if, if not dealt with properly. Um, but how do you address those, I guess, older views of, of what harassment actually is? Well, you're right. I mean, education and awareness is, is part of it. But, I mean, you know, the simple principle of don't put your hands on anybody else if you're not invited is, uh, you know, you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, pinching someone on the on the bottom. I mean, my God, I, you know, where's the line? I'm, what's sexual assault? When does that become a, a complete violation of your own personal space? And so part of it is education and awareness for people that don't understand that, uh, you know, people have a right to their own personal space, you know, and that if someone says, well, it makes me uncomfortable, when you do that, that you stop and you don't make light of it. And, uh, you know, that, that uh, you're right, harassment and, and bullying is, uh, is acknowledged and addressed and that you can actually stop those behaviors. Sometimes some of the um, less egregious behavior uh, is, is people aren't aware of the fact that uh, it's having a negative impact on someone. So I think education and training and awareness for everybody is really important. And what are those long-term impacts on victims? Well, the long-term impacts on victims, and I would say for their employers as well, is absenteeism, mental health issues, sometimes substance use-related problems. Um, you know, people will leave really well-paying jobs simply because they don't want to tolerate the environment. And when we look at our agenda around, for example, women in leadership or non-traditional sectors, women will often say that it's the climate that forces them out. I spoke to a group of women, uh, ca- women in capital markets, uh, um, you know, people that are working in highly skilled, paid professions who have said, you know, after, say, having a baby, they decide they don't want to go back to that environment. It's just not worth it. And that's at that level. So some women who are people that are being harassed are trapped. You know, they don't have those opportunities to choose another profession or another job site. Um, so they end up getting sick and they end up staying home and they end up finding ways to avoid the abuser. And, and you know, companies pay the price of that. The economic prosperity of a company is actually linked to the health and wellness of their, their employees. Employees are one of our biggest assets as employers. And if we don't take care of that asset in the way that everybody has the best opportunity for pr- productivity, we're losing an opportunity to grow as a company. You spoke uh, in that scrum that I mentioned earlier in the week about how through your career you personally dealt with, and if it's okay with you, would you mind telling us a little bit about your personal experience with harassment in the workplace? Well, yeah, as I, as I said in the scrum, my first experience, and it was extremely severe, was as a babysitter. Um, and it was my first real babysitting job. You know, it had a few other little little jobs here and there for an hour. But this was a, for a family that my mother actually worked with, uh, with, this, uh, the, with the husband of this family. And um, 
and uh, you know, in the middle of the night, uh, I was sleeping over. They had gone to a very late event, and and my mother felt completely safe with this family. And in the middle of the night, the father, who was intoxicated, came into the room, and and I was sleeping, and he laid on top of me, and uh, I woke up to a full-grown man who was married and had two children, uh, two lovely little girls, uh, on top of me. And so, you know, complete sheer panic on my behalf, and I left in the middle of the night, and uh, um, the police were called, and as I said at the time, uh, the investigation concluded that his behavior was considered amorous behavior, which I don't even know if that's like a thing anymore. I don't know. I have no idea because it was so long ago. But it left me with a profound sense of disappointment at the time because I thought, you know, I I, I mean, I, I was terrified. This was a... This was a truly terrifying event. It was the first time that I had experienced anything like that in my life. And so that was my first sense of workplace. Like, I mean, you know, it's a very early, early on. And then, you know, as I went on, I mean, uh, in the waitressing industry, you're often harassed by customers or you may be harassed by, you know, the, the managerial staff or the supervisor staff. It's a pretty rough and tumble industry. Um, so I spent a couple of years waitressing and experienced some of that. Um, and, you know, throughout my career, I've experienced different kinds of her, you know, worked for a car dealership for a while where, uh, sexism and jokes about women and gender and sex was commonplace and regular by the ownership of, of the facility. So, I mean, these are ongoing stories, right? I mean, so you become, as I think, especially as a woman in the workplace, as sad as it sounds, somewhat immune to it. I mean, you realize that this is a part of our culture in, in Canada and that uh, a patriarchal culture permits and permeates this behavior. Through the consultations, employers have said that they would prefer to improve their internal processes to deal with this, and yet it seems a lot of the complaints from employees and victims who have gone through this are that they're not being dealt with properly. Do you think allowing companies to just deal with it internally only is enough to deal with this problem? I think that we need a regime that supports employees in the workplace. And, you know, my space is a federally regulated space. And so I think uh, we have an opportunity as a country to social, so show some leadership on this file. Um, I think, you know, right now we're, we've been working with all of those, those people I talked about earlier that we've consulted on, on a framework. What does that look like from a legislative perspective, from a support perspective, from, a you know, supporting survivors? And how do we support survivors of this? So... No, I don't think we do enough currently, and that's why we're excited about the results in one way, because it actually points to the need for, uh, for some significant um, attention. How far are the Feds willing to go? Is it something like making sure the company ha- have to bring in a neutral third party, let's say, which is one option that came forward, uh, to dealing with complaints when they're made? Well, we've, we, you're right, the, the report has some fantastic ideas, and let's just say that everything's on the table. Um, certainly, I can't speak about the specifics of what we'll be doing right yet, but I can tell you that we, uh, we thought that there were really incredible um, ideas that came from employers and employees, uh, you know, union groups, uh, stakeholders, civil society, um, some of the you know, leading thought, uh, uh, leading sort of people in this space, and, and, and we're really excited about the ideas that they brought forward. When can we expect this strategy out? How long will people have to wait before we see what the government plans to do with dealing with uh, harassment in the workplace? We're moving incredibly quickly and it won't be very long at all. That was Employment Minister Patty Haidu discussing workplace harassment. Still to come on the show, we speak with a New Yorker who had been through the scene of this week's truck attack not long before it happened. 
The chief commissioner of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Inquiry tells us why she needs an extension of years to complete the work, and the McLean's panel discusses divine intervention and possible pot delays. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Coming up on the show, the Chief Commissioner of the Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women is here to talk about the interim report, and the McLean's panel weighs in on creationism and a potential battle with the Senate over marijuana. But first, the truck attack on a Manhattan bike path earlier this week, which killed eight people, serves as a grim reminder of New York City's place in the history of modern terrorism. A lot has been written about the attack, but Eric Scholl, the New Yorker who edits an online newsletter about the Donald Trump presidency called The Chaos Report, has a unique perspective. He actually biked along the route where the attack happened just hours earlier. Eric Scholl happens to be an old friend of McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes, and John called him to talk about it. He started out by asking Eric about the bike ride he took on October 31st, starting from his home in Manhattan. I had to go out to Brooklyn, which is one of the other boroughs. And interestingly, normally the fastest way for me to go there is to go through city streets and over the Manhattan Bridge rather than the Brooklyn Bridge, which is much more famous, mainly because the Brooklyn Bridge always has a lot of tourists on it. And I I tend to get very worked up. So it's much easier going over sort of the more utilitarian of the bridges. But the weather was so good that that morning that I thought I would ride down along the river. Um, And what one of the big improvements that's been made to Manhattan um, that started in the Bloomberg years and continued is that there are a lot of bike paths now. And in fact, there's a path that goes almost all the way around the circumference of Manhattan. And people use it a lot. Um, And it's really nice, you know, because it's right along the river and there's a breeze and it's beautiful. And, you know, New York is not Manhattan's an island. So um, it's just great. Hmm. So I just thought the weather's so good. I'll take a ride down that bike path. I left my house sometime in the early afternoon rode down past the pier where um, that's kind of a multi-use pier, which is a actually a parking lot. It's not used for boats anymore. And then there are a lot of baseball fields that they've built on the roof of the mm-hmm. parking lot and also soccer fields. You use the baseball and fields so, there, right? Sorry to interrupt. You use those my, baseball my fields. Nephew, my nephew does. Huh. Yeah, they play Little League there. And actually, that's the spot at which the truck, driven by the attacker, came on to the bike path. So, you know, I passed by there. And just, you know, a lot of things that you you would normally go by, there are tennis courts, there's a dog park, and it was a beautiful day and a beautiful sunny day, uh, as was 9-11, which, you know, people always refer to the fact that that was a beautiful sunny day also. Mm-hmm. You know, I get I got down to lower Manhattan and crossed over and went over the Brooklyn Bridge and, as usual, got angry at the tourists because they were <laughs> coming and taking photos into the bike in the bike lane and, you know, went to Brooklyn and met somebody there, the person there that I have to meet. And um, on my way back, I started getting a lot of alerts 
on my phone, which the, the city will send out emergency alerts um, to people's cell phones. And they never really tell you anything except, you know, there's an emergency closure or an unplanned road closure or police activity in a certain area, but they never tell you exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. But I was getting a lot of them. And coming back over the bridge, I started hearing sirens. And when I came back down, I noticed that there were police vehicles that were really moving fast and kind of like whipping around corners. And, you know, it it really seemed like there was something very serious going on. But I didn't know what it was. I continued uptown. I had to stop at a drugstore. Somebody in the drugstore said, oh, yeah, yeah, there was a shooting down on Chamber Street. You know, in some ways, kind of a matter-of-fact thing because you get used to these kinds of things happening. Sure. And, you know, at which point I started looking for more information. And and at first, um, I was looking at one of the more local um, news sites, and they started referring to the fact that somebody had driven down um, the bike path that I had been on. You know, I wouldn't say it was exactly a close call, but you know, an, maybe an hour before, and with the purpose of running down the bicyclists and joggers and um, ended up killing eight people and injuring 12. So eight innocent people dead, and it's terrible, of course, and it makes you think about similar things, you know, London Bridge, that promenade in Nice, uh, I think it was a Christmas market in Berlin, but um, New York is New York. You know, you mentioned it, it is, it's where the towers were. What, what do you think is the city's relationship now to this kind of story? You, you wrote in your, on, on the chaos report that you have incredible confidence in New York police and feel well protected, but how, how do you feel like New York, you know, processes a, something like this? In some ways, you know, it, it, it has to do with not being afraid because you're interacting in the city with all kinds of different people all the time. And I don't, I, I may not say this in the most elegant way, but you know, if you're going to be afraid of people of different races and cultures and religions, this is not the place to be because each time you get on a subway car, nobody else on that car is going to look like you. Right. Eric, I want to get a little bit, if you don't mind, to to Trump. You are the editor-in-chief of the Chaos Report, after all. What did you make of his response? And could I even fine-tune that question a little bit? I mean, Trump is, in a way, a New York personality. He he should have some kind of feel for the place, right? Do you do you sense that at all in his response to this? I mean, he called the U.S. justice system a joke and put the blame on elements of the immigration system in the U.S. What, what do you make of all that? He is a New Yorker, and I think that he kind of came around a little bit um, beyond just, you know, his initial reaction, which was kind of thoughts and prayers and then starting to, like, rip at people for not doing what he wanted. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one thing I pointed out the first night right after this happened was that... Um, for for whatever reason, just because of the way my feed worked, I happened to see President Obama's condolence message first, mm. which said, New Yorkers are as tough as they come, I think. Good line. And to, 
and to me that you know that was great for me to hear because I I kind of felt like okay it's okay you know we're doing we're doing a good job and of course you know Trump's first um, tweet had was something about how you know being politically correct is fine but we have to stop being politically correct so it was just kind of like going back to an old theme mm-hmm. and then the second day tweets last night where he was talking about um you know the death penalty and sending the guy to Guantanamo Bay and then and then it came and then again he came out and said oh well we're not going to send him to Guantanamo Bay because it's too expensive but I still want the death penalty is you know is the kind of thing where it's hard to tell a lot of people would say you know he's just playing to his base right that's what he thinks his base wants to hear maybe you know maybe his base wants public executions also i don't know <laughs> you know it but a lot of but where you know it seemed like he was getting a, kind of close to that yeah um although you know just for the record he didn't say anything like that but you know he did I, all i kept seeing on his feed last night was like death penalty death penalty death penalty all all caps with yeah. exclamation points, which is understandable. I mean, I share that sentiment. Mm. I don't necessarily believe in the death penalty, but just in, you know, feeling really angry that this happened yeah. and really wanting this the, 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 the perpetrator to be punished. But, you know, what is a little bit irregular about this is the kind of thing that you were taught, that you, that you just mentioned, that calling law enforcement names and, you know, these are people who are out trying to do their jobs. And, you know, and we do have rule of law and due process. And, you know, it's an, it seemed to be another example of chipping away at those things. That was Eric Scholl, the New York-based editor-in-chief of The Chaos Report, in conversation with McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes. Still to come, the McLean's panel discusses marijuana and the controversial creationism comments from the Governor General, as well we'll hear from the Chief Commissioner of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Inquiry about why they need more time and more money to complete their work. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Still to come on the show, we have the McLean's panel, which will be talking about how the Senate could push back the deadline for legalized pot and how the Governor General has sparked controversy over her comments about divine intervention. But first... This week, the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls released its interim report entitled, Our Women and Girls Are Sacred. The inquiry is about halfway through its two-year mandate, and a part of the recommendations in this interim report, the inquiry is asking for more time, more money, and a national police task force that could review and even reopen old cases. Here to talk a little bit more about this interim report is the Chief Commissioner of the Inquiry, Marion Buller. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. So before we get to the recommendations aspect of this report, I wanted to ask you, how much progress have you made in terms of testimony across the country? 
We've just wrapped up our fourth hearing. We've heard from approximately 320. I'm just waiting for the final count from uh, member two, but I think 320 would be safe uh, to say. We have over 900 people registered to tell their truths or their stories to us, and uh, only in the last month, uh, in October, 100 people uh, registered. So we're gaining momentum in terms of interest and number of participants. The inquiry got off to a bit of a rocky start. There were some operational delays and, and, and problems. There seemed to be some confusion. We saw a lot of staffing changes with the inquiry as well as a result of that. You're blaming this in the report basically on bureaucratic red tape delays, other issues. Why is it the government's fault that uh, you weren't able to get everything off to the start that you wanted to? There were many challenges, and I prefer to look at it this way. We had a very challenging year in a lot of respects. We've turned that page. We're moving forward. We were able to, in nine months, start with nothing but a piece of paper in our hands and uh, have four offices across Canada staffing, as well as our first hearing in Whitehorse. So uh, it was a challenging year, but we were able to move ahead. We've had... Uh, uh, three more hearings since Whitehorse, as well as an expert panel on Indigenous laws and decolonization. So notwithstanding all of those challenges, uh, I think we've done a great job. But uh, a lot of the families complained about how this was being run, and there were problems before the hearings even began. So why is it the government's fault and not um, the people who were in charge of running this operation? Well, you work with the tools you're given, and I think that's probably the best way of describing it. But we're moving on. We're, we've learned, we've uh, adapted to working with government, and uh, uh, it's onwards and upwards for this national inquiry. You're asking for more time and more funding in order to make sure that you get through everything that you need to get through uh, with this inquiry. How much more time and money does the inquiry need? We're in the process of looking at that because we want enough time to be able to do our job right. And people across Canada, Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people, are saying, slow down, take more time, listen to more people. We want to give everyone uh, the opportunity to speak to us who want to. We want to have the time to be able to do the research that has to be done. Uh, we have to be able to provide concrete recommendations that are practical and doable for governments all across Canada. We want to be able to do that well. So is it the demand of people coming forward that is the reason why more time is needed, uh, more people need to speak? That's a very large part of it. The people who are coming forward to us are saying, we want more time to speak to you. Uh, we have other people in our family, other people in our community who want to come forward and speak to you after all. Uh, when can you come back? Which is heartwarming. I think it's fabulous. The government will want to know details, though, when they see a report and recommendations from that report. Uh, they, they will probably say, well, what exactly are you asking for here? So where are you in terms of talks with them to figure that out? We're doing our homework because we want to go back to the government only once for more time and money. Uh, Canadian taxpayers deserve that certainty. Families and survivors deserve that certainty. Uh, people across Canada need that certainty. So we want to uh, go back with one request and that's it. Rather than coming back 
a year or two years down the road and say, oh, we, uh, we miscalculated. We need more time after all. This is taxpayers' money. These are people's lives. These are people's memories. We have to do it right. Do you think it'll be, you know, years, months, weeks, What in, you know, vague general terms, how much do you think you might need to get through all the people who need to be heard? Well, I think we're looking at years. Uh, I can't say how many at this point. But when we start doing the calculations of hearing from, at this point in time, 900 people across Canada, uh, we have to be able to give them time. We have to uh, be able to arrive, set up, go into ceremony, observe local protocols. All of that takes time, and it's time that we want to spend in communities. And what is the funding exactly for? Is it just to make sure that you're able to operate, travel the country, hear those stories, or is there more to the funding that you need? Well, some of it obviously is going to be operational because we'll have to keep staff on longer and keep offices and lights on uh, for longer than we originally thought. Uh, But a lot of the funding is going to be for providing uh, travel and and other uh, arrangements for families and survivors who want to talk to us. We have uh, translation and transcripts that have to be uh, accounted for as well. So there are a lot of costs that we're very careful about, we want to be accurate about as well. Okay, so you don't have the exact details of how much more time and money, but uh, when do you think you will have those answers for the government? Uh, Do you hope to have it before, well before the end of your mandate in a year's time? Uh, Is it it a matter of weeks or months before you, you have those answers? We're aiming for the end of the calendar year. Uh, I'm working very hard to be able to meet my own deadline of before the end of the calendar year because we want government to have time to consider our request. Now, another big aspect to the recommendations you put forward is creating a national police task force that will uh, have the ability to review and possibly even reopen cases uh, where families have complaints about how those cases were handled. Why is it necessary to have a national police task force instead of, I don't know, maybe having the RCMP or Vancouver police or whatever police force originally looked at this uh, take another look at their cases? There are a couple of reasons why we're looking at a separate task force. And one of them, and probably the most important, is trust. Uh, We're hearing from Indigenous people all across Canada that they just simply don't trust the police force that investigated their loved one's murder or or uh, that their loved one went missing. They ju- the, the trust is gone. So we have to look at an independent body that's national in scope, uh, that's in a position to earn the trust of Indigenous people all across Canada, plus have the necessary expertise, of course. And on that expertise, uh, are you hoping that the makeup of this police task force includes or is completely made up of Indigenous uh, police officers? In our recommendation in our interim report, we didn't specify the makeup of the task force. We think it's best that uh, government have uh, a wide open range uh, in order to start uh, consultations with Indigenous groups, police forces across Canada, uh, there'll be some important consultations to take place prior to actually appointing people to that task force. Do you have evidence that cases were mishandled by police? 
we have cases where family members are not satisfied with the results. They uh, either didn't get the answers that uh, they should have received. They didn't uh, have contact from police for long periods of time. Uh, there were uh, still remaining questions with them. Um, and they want answers, and they deserve the answers. I know it's only halfway through your original mandate, but uh, do you believe that systemic racism played a role when it comes to police investigations into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls? That's one of the factors that we're looking very closely at in every hearing we go to. And uh, it's premature for me to say uh, yes or no to that question because we have to hear uh, a good cross-section of cases before we can make any findings of fact. What is the purpose of the commemoration fund? Another suggestion, uh, recommendation that the inquiry has put forward, uh, and how much money do you think should go into such a fund? A commemoration fund is something that we've heard about uh, in every hearing that we've gone to in Canada, and also as part of the pre-inquiry process. People don't want their lost loved ones to be forgotten, and people don't want their experiences of violence to go uh, forgotten across Canada. And so uh, it's a, a fund to have, a, I know appropriate is kind of a loaded word, but uh, ways of commemorating lost, one, lost loved ones that are meaningful to individuals and communities across Canada. And that's why we said in that recommendation that there had to be consultation with families and survivors as well as organizations from grassroots to national. Because what we're hearing would be appropriate, say, in Whitehorse, uh, is something different uh, from what we're hearing in uh, Winnipeg or in Number Two. So it, it, it'll it'll have to be community specific. And finally, you've heard a lot of testimony so far. How difficult and emotional has it been for the commissioners, for yourself and the other commissioners, to hear this type of testimony day in, day out? and review it constantly when there are sometimes some very gory and disturbing details. I know that all four of us at times have been in tears in listening to the testimony, but I can say uh, on behalf of all of us, what we do take from the testimony is great appreciation for the resilience, for the strength, for the courage of the people who have come forward to speak to us. It's amazing how how people can get up in the morning and carry this grief and trauma with them every day and raise families, go to work, um, have birthday parties, and yet they have this gnawing uh, grief and trauma that eats away at them every day. That was Marion Buller, the Chief Commissioner of the Inquiry on Missing, Murdered and Indigenous Women and Girls. She was speaking to us about the inquiry's interim report, and the recommendations for the federal government. Coming up after the break on McLean's on the Hill, Paul Wells and John Geddes join me for the McLean's panel, where we'll discuss why divine intervention has the governor general in some hot water and whether or not the Senate could delay marijuana legalization. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. 
It's now time for the McLean's panel, and I'm joined, as always, by McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes and McLean's Senior Writer Paul Wells. Thank you very much for being here, guys. Hi, good to be here. Hi. Let's talk about marijuana. The legislation will soon be going to the Senate, and there are reports now that senators are talking about possibly delaying the implementation. The government has set a July 1st, 2018 deadline for when they want to see pot legalized in our country. Uh, do you think the Senate and the House are due for another showdown over marijuana this time? I think to some extent they're just going to have a showdown at some point, no matter what. There's a few different things going on in the Senate. One is the uh, arrival now of, of, of this large contingent of independent senators, all named by Justin Trudeau, uh, who now form a plurality of the, of the, of the, the total Senate composition. There's, there's more independents named by Trudeau than there are former liberals or conservatives. They're just happy as pigs in clover that they get, to, they get the run of the place, and they're looking for chances to... Uh, assert their authority, and their authority tends to be kind of bookish. Uh, they like to study things at length and consider things uh, in detail before, it should be said, in almost every case, voting exactly the way a Liberal cabinet minister would hope that they would vote. And one of the ringleaders of this gang is André Pratt, the former editorialist for La Presse, and, and he has been saying that the deadline for implementation of this legislation is a, a political deadline, and uh, he can study the bill until the cows come home if he happens to find it interesting because, hey, he's a senator and you're not. But, you know, there have been a surprising number of files lately where the Senate has come within a couple of votes of substantially amending or substantially holding up or substantially confounding the government in one way or another. And if it's not marijuana, it'll be something else next week. Yeah. But in previous incidents, like let's say with assisted dying, I mean, they had a constitutional argument, some saying that they had serious concerns about whether this is in the spirit of a Supreme Court judgment. That's not the case here. Right. Should they be trying to hold up uh, legislation from the government of the people uh, when it's not an issue of constitutionality? I would argue not, although I think uh, there's been some debate and there's at least... Too strong to say a consensus, but a feeling that they should be allowed to kick legislation back to the House one time, you know, with, with suggested amendments, and perhaps they'll take their time and do that. But you have to almost triangulate this now, right? There's the House and the Senate, and then there are the provinces. Obviously, one of the reasons that the Trudeau government has decided to make this deadline July 1st is to try to compel provinces or put some light some fire under provinces to get moving on their big part of this thing which is regulating marijuana so all the quick issues surrounding sale including the age uh, limit you know it's these are all in the hands of provinces so the the problem here is if if the provinces start looking at the senate thinking oh wait maybe we get a reprieve here. Maybe we get a little more time. Maybe we get a lot more time if we can if we can push it. This is this is problematic. And so you look at provinces like British Columbia, where they only in late October got their committee looking at how they're going to regulate up and running. Looks to Saskatchewan, where uh, municipalities have been complaining that they're not getting any signals yet from the government about the provincial government how they're going to regulate. You can go across the board, and in many provinces there are already delaying issues. The federal government, from the Justice Minister's office, the Health Minister's office, had been hoping, hey, let's keep the pressure on the provinces. They can't dolly, you know, they, they have to get rolling on this stuff because they've only got till next summer. Now this throws another whole factor into the mix there. And I, I suspect some provinces will look to the Senate and think, good, hold it up, give us some time. Paul, do you think this just changes fundamentally the dynamic with the provinces, where the provinces look at legislation and say, 
all right, well, if the government doesn't want to change it, let's go to the senators now and see if we can disrupt or, or interfere with this, uh, with this process. Not only the government, um, just about every interest group yes. with any sense of game theory has been devoting substantially more resources to the Senate. Lobby companies around town and uh, associations that work with lobby companies say that it's way easier to move three votes in the Senate than three votes in the House of Commons. And since the Senate is a third the size of the House of Commons, it's uh, substantially more important to be able to have that influence. And so uh, just a hell of a lot of senators are suddenly being taken out for lunch as often as they will go. Well, just to pick up on your point there, Paul, I mean, if people thinking about this have to realize discipline, discipline in the House of Commons is generally very rigid. You know, if I mean, really what you need to do is move government MPs and government MPs with rare exception do not want to step out of line right so it's not just that the Senate is a, a kind of a new game in town in many for many pieces of legislation they're really the only game in town if you're a lobbyist looking at the legislative part of uh, part of government Okay, so let's switch from marijuana to divine intervention, a debate mm. happening that I didn't expect to happen this week. But <laughs> the governor general at, at a conference of scientists had talked about how she wanted more of a focus on scientific results and kind of scoffed at climate change skeptics and mm. talked about how she was upset with the fact that people are still looking to astrology and divine intervention to talk about creation. And this right. has created a lot of problems. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer speaking out about it now, putting a statement on his Facebook. John, yeah. uh, you know, are, are we going to see sort of a religious science battle happen here as a result of this? It, well, if your religion is sort of the monarchy, which it is for a lot of people, there's there's sort of a battle going on. Look, I, I actually am taking, I've taken a stand. I've been, you know, sparring back with some people about this. I think Paul has been in it as well a, a little this week. I don't think governors general should say anything very interesting. I think they should be as dull as they can possibly be because – you know, we can, you can you can you can parse what the new governor general said in this case and say, well, she might have been okay just saying, hey, on on climate change, I'm a scientist and I believe in the science. She didn't just do that. She she kind of made fun of people who believe that there was a divine hand in creation or possibly the creation of the human species. That was a little unclear from her exact words what she was getting at. There are lots of people who think there was a divine hand in creation and the creation of human species. She should not be making light of that. It's not her place. So there's that, but there's also, uh, I actually think that the science on global warming is pretty settled, but there are people who don't think it's that settled, and, and I just don't think we need the Governor General waiting in that debate. There are plenty of elected politicians in Canada to have that debate as our representatives. She needs to not do that, I think. There's, uh, to some extent, there are seven stages to the, to the career of any Governor General. <laughs> that roughly match Eli Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's <laughs> seven stages of grief. There's, 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 uh, there's uh, uh, a denial, there's anger, there's acceptance, there's... Uh, cucumber uh, sandwiches. <laughs> cucumber sandwiches are a stage, I think, in the Governor General's development. The, uh, uh, I mean, it, it almost doesn't matter what she said. There, this is about the point in her career as Governor General where some people are going to be outraged at, what she, at something that she said. When Mikhail Jean was the Governor General, she showed up at the press gallery dinner and gave a comedy speech, a comic speech, uh, uh, as every politician at the annual press gallery dinner does, in which she talked about how hot she was and yeah, some other stuff. Didn't like that. And uh, particularly in her, in her home province of Quebec, people who especially weren't familiar with the rituals of the press gallery dinner, thought that she was the worst governor general since uh, whoever the, was the governor general right after the Battle of the Plains of Abraham. 
<laughs> and, uh, and, and, and that this usually follows on the heels of a sort of a national swoon at how fortunate we are to be led by this astonishing creature, the Governor General, whether it was uh, uh, David Johnson or whether it was Romeo LeBlanc or whoever. And I would sort of like to moderate the response in both directions. The Governor General is almost never a perfect creature who's handed down by the gods to make us uh, enlightened. And at the same time, the Governor General is probably not the one who's going to lead us into ruination. Uh, the Governor General is just uh, a political appointee by a temporary government who's doing their best to represent the Queen uh, during the majority of time when the Queen is occupied elsewhere. And um, uh, uh, but but this is just a stage. I think the next stage, if I'm not mistaken, for uh, Julie Payette is going to be an extended bout of boredom. All right, on that note, I'm going to have to end it here. Thanks very much, McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes and McLean Senior Writer Paul Wells. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. For more of your politics and power, join us next week on The Hill.